who you are defines how you build. This is the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you by Stanford eCorner. Good afternoon, I'm Toby Corey, and I'd like to welcome all the Stanford students, all the students around the world, all the enlightened folks to today's ETL, presented by STVP, the Entrepreneurship Center in Stanford School of Engineering and BASES, that's the Business Association of Stanford Entrepreneurial Students. Today, I'm incredibly delighted to welcome Kristen Fortney to ETL. Kristen is the co-founder and CEO of BioAge Labs. This is a clinical stage biotechnology company developing a pipeline of treatments to extend healthy lifespan by targeting the molecular causes of aging. Doesn't sound too technical, right? <laughs> the company uses its discovery platform, which combines quantitative analysis of proprietary um, longitudinal human samples with detailed health records tracking individuals over a lifespan to map out the key molecular pathways that impact healthy human aging. By targeting these pathways with a large and diverse portfolio of drugs, BioAge aims to treat and even prevent diseases of aging entirely new ways. Uh, her talk's gonna be really fascinating. So Kristen's scientific background is in aging biology and uh, bioformatics. She received her PhD in medical biophysics from the University of Toronto, followed by a postdoctoral training at Stanford University where she has a fellow of the uh, Ellison Medical Foundation, American Federation for Aging Research. Kristen, welcome to today's ETL show. Uh, thanks so much, Toby, for that introduction. <clears throat> it's really wonderful to be here. Yeah, we're so happy. I know there's like an Im immense amount of info to, to get through. So I think what would be really helpful, I know you put a slide deck together, but if you could give the students just a brief summary of like both the problem space and talk a little bit about what BioAge is trying to solve. I think that will set up a really good context for us to get into a little bit of a fireside chat. Um, yeah, for sure. So happy to pull up that deck. Uh, so you gave a great introduction to what we're focused on. And really, we believe that by targeting aging biology itself, we can find important new treatments for uh, key diseases of aging. And that's really our focus at BioAge. And where we are today, um, you said this basically, right? But what, what we are is we're a platform-driven clinical stage biotech company advancing a diverse and growing portfolio of therapies that treat disease by targeting molecular mechanisms of aging, um, which is really a new way to go after disease. And I think a really important one. Um, some key differentiators of BioAge, and we'll go into more detail on this, you know, probably during our conversation, but we have this powerful human-first discovery platform uh, I really believe that you need to understand human aging to treat human aging, and we've invested heavily uh, in research in that area. And today, we have a clinical stage portfolio of three programs in human testing um, and growing. Uh, and this is also a really important year for the company because we have two clinical readouts, both a phase two trial of an immune aging drug and a phase one B trial of a muscle aging drug. But we'll know, uh, we'll see the data by the end of this year. That's fantastic. Sounds like you guys are off to a really great start. I think you've raised a total of 127 million. That's right, 130 million so far. The clinic is an expensive place. Fantastic. Um, so this is just a brief slide on why we focus on aging and really aging is one of the biggest challenges for human health. And if you look at the United States today, the two biggest killers are heart disease and cancer. And these are completely different diseases in terms of their symptoms and their progression. Um, but they're really driven by the same underlying factor, which is your age, primarily diseases of older people, not younger ones. And the promise of aging science is that by understanding aging biology, we'll be able to intervene in entirely new ways and eventually even prolong what we call the health span, the amount of time that you are healthy. Uh, and if you look at the US today, the average lifespan is around you know, 80 years, but the average health span is only around 60 years. It's when you get your first chronic disease of aging. Then you have this very long, expensive period where these diseases just keep on adding up. Uh, and the promise of these therapies is that we might be able to sort of, you know, shorten that gap, shrink that gap um, so that we're living healthier longer. And the way that we approach this at BioAge is by I like to characterize it as copying what already works. There already are all these humans out there who are living really long, uh, really successfully. Um, on the right there is an extreme example, Robert Marchand, uh, who won a competitive uh, uh, cycling uh, award at the age of 105. He's in the Guinness Book of World Records. 
So there's all these people who, you know, live not only long, but extremely healthy. Their brains still work, uh, their, their muscles still work. And at BioAge, we want to know what's different about those people at the molecular level. So we've invested in really deeply mapping human aging across a wide range of, uh, of different ages, different populations. And this is just showing here in one of the biobank cohorts that we work with, the age at which people die. And as you know, some people die when they're 70, but others make it as long as 100, right? And we're trying to figure out what the difference is, that we can target those differences and really learn from this exceptional biology of people who live longer and live better. So the way that we're tackling this is really collecting data over a lifetime. Um, so we've partnered with some really special biobanks. Like the way that I think about it sort of big picture is that because humans, because all of us age on the scale of decades, we really need molecular data that span decades to understand aging. Um, and we're able to do this by basically running a 50 year experiment back in time um, because there's some very special biobanks that started collecting blood samples from healthy people as long as 50 years ago. And those saved individuals were followed up the entire rest of their lives with longitudinal sample collection, with matched electronic health records, tracking not only how long these people lived, but what diseases they got as they aged, and also health span variables like their walking speed, their grip strength, their cognitive function. And what we're able to do is sort of leverage modern technologies today by you know, taking these old preserved samples uh, that have been you know, in deep freeze for decades and interrogating them with modern omics technologies like the proteome, the transcriptome, and the metabolome, that really just making a big list of all the molecules in each sample uh, using technologies that weren't available just a few years ago. And then using machine learning to ask a bunch of questions of the data, like which molecular pathways are changing with age, but even more importantly, which predict the future? Like what's different about the biology, the, the pathways of those 50 year olds who going to live 90 plus in great health from those of us who don't. And this is where um, our hypotheses come from. Now, once you've found a pathway to target and once you've found a drug to hit that pathway, what do you do with it in the clinic, right? And this is a really important question. Like, what does a clinical trial for aging even look like? Um, so the broad philosophy at BioAge is that, well, we're gonna make bets on targets and on mechanisms that we think long-term have the potential to help uh, a broadly aging population. But there has to be a really sort of efficient path first through the clinic. So our first clinical trial will never be for aging. It'll be for an acute disease that's really well-defined that will let us you know, create value rapidly, that will de-risk our program in humans. So there's a clear regulatory path at the FDA, a clear payer story at the end of it, but we can expand afterwards to a really um, ambitious, broad aging indication with high prevalence, uh, huge market potential and high unmet need. And just to give you a brief example uh, of one of our currently live programs that has a trial reading out this year, um, BGE-105 is a drug we're developing for muscle aging. So on the left there, uh, you can see some data for how we first got excited about this, this uh, target from our human cohorts. We found that middle-aged people with higher apelin levels were not only living longer, but had better muscle health. Then when it intervened in multiple muscle aging models in old mice, we found that this drug, that a drug that upregulated apelin could basically protect muscles from atrophying um, in, in the short-term acute scenario. So like this is basically, you take a really old mouse and you, you cast its, its limb for a few weeks and that leads to severe muscle atrophy. But as you can see in the data here, um, the mycin drug are really substantially protected from atrophy and we're really excited by that. And, uh, and then we went immediately into a phase 1B clinical trial where we're looking at some healthier elderly volunteers at bed rest. So we have some people who'll be sitting in bed for a week. Um, when you're old, that's enough to sort of cause some changes in some muscle atrophy biomarkers we'll be able to see if our drug helps that. And then after that, we can move immediately into phase two trials in important acute indications um, driven by muscle, muscle atrophy. And yeah, so that's one of the, you know, one of our few programs, one of our three programs so far. And our overall goal here is a, uh, one of my favorite quotes, but our aim should be to help our patients die young as late as possible. It's by Tenley Albright. And yeah, that's BioAge, thanks. That's a fascinating overview. One thing that that uh, 
that reminded me of when you're going through your presentation is uh, a similar philosophy to Peter Thiel's um, uh, startup book. And I think what you've done is really focused on uh, a small niche, a specific problem, kind of a Trojan horse that can then grow into a big blue ocean, occupy that space. Is that was that where you started or did that just develop over time, trying to understand the problem set and your, and your strategy to penetrate the market? Well, yeah, I guess, you know, my philosophy there is that a startup should only do one impossible thing at a time, right? <laughs> and so we're going after aging. Yeah. That's, that's new. That's hard, right? Like that's our big thing. And we want to sort of de-risk every step along the way as much as possible, right? So we're also not going to also revolutionize the FDA, you know, in our first, in our first go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I like the strategy a lot. All right. Well, uh, for those that were here last week and heard Alfred Lynn talk, uh, he made a really cool comment about either one of two things happen, either you following your parents' footsteps or you go in a 180 degree different direction. And I know you went in a 180 degree different direction. Your, your folks aren't scientists, but how did you get interested in science, particularly human biology um, especially given that your, your folks and family, you know, we're, we're on that, with that career path. Yeah, sure. No, that's, that's a great question. I mean, <laughs> my, my answer might be science fiction. <laughs> I read an awful lot of science fiction, um, back when I was in high school and that's when I became, I guess, interested in a lot of, well, also in aging biology, right? Like there was, I, I became aware of sort of specific advances in aging biology, um, as a high school student where, and this is true today, right? There's a growing list of interventions, whether they're genetic interventions or therapeutics that can make a mouse, you know, live longer and live healthier longer. And sort of the vision of that translating to humans has always been very exciting for me. Um, I actually didn't start off in biology. My undergraduate degree was in, was in math and physics. I, I love math and physics, but I was always sort of keeping tabs on the aging field and decided, you know, for my PhD that I wanted to get into it directly myself and, and really sort of bring my sort of more uh, numerical skills to do, you know, bioinformatics and machine learning in that area. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. There's all the reoccurring theme, all, you know, successful entrepreneurs start out with a, you know, an interesting backdrop story, what got them where they wanted to go. And I think that everything from Ethan's story of impossible meets and where you are with science fiction and, and leading into that when, and finding your passion, I think related to that. Um, I made some remarks at the top of the show where you've earned your PhD from the University of Toronto, and then you moved to the Bay Area for your Stanford postdoc. But was entrepreneurship in your field of vision at that point, um, or did you have other career paths in mind? Like, how, how did that how did that vector surface itself? Yeah, no, that's that's a really good question too. I, I was always, you know, very motivated by the idea of developing therapies that humans took, right? And um, and I guess I'd originally connected that, that, that in my mind to doing academic research and then, you know, realizing that wasn't really the kind of thing that happened in academia. Um, while I was a PhD student, I think starting a company was not really in, in my mind. It wasn't on the list of like sort of possible career options for me. It was still a rare thing in Toronto. Um, I think it's, you know, this is close to a decade ago now. So I think that's maybe less so today. But the Bay Area is still a special place. So I, I came after my PhD to, uh, to Stanford for my postdoc, um, in part to get a crack at some really awesome genomes of humans who live to be older than 110, amazing project. And, um, and then, yeah, I, I made friends with founders. I, I you know, knew a lot of, it became one of those you know, possible things to do. And um, honestly, like after my postdoc, if there'd been a really amazing company working on aging, I might've joined up. But the, had a sort of particular idea of what I wanted to do and starting a company became, um, was the natural sort of next step, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think students love to just understand the breadcrumbs of where you got to that idea and, and how you got to that point in time. So uh, as a follow on to that, uh, were there any courses or mentors or other factors that helped pave the path from doing science to becoming an entrepreneur? They're influencing, major influencing um, events that occurred during that time. Yeah, for sure. So I actually did take the um, Ignite program while I was at Stanford, which uh, was supposed to be a crash course for PhDs, you know, more scientifically trained uh, types to get, you know, really exposed to all the sort of startup stuff. And I, I found that a useful experience. But also just honestly, having founders go as friends, right, instead of hearing directly one-on-one -on -one, um, their stories and the process, like that's the most valuable thing. And there's such a 
uh, an enrichment of those, you know, around Stanford and the whole community. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, let's shift gears a little bit because uh, obviously you understand uh, the science, the product side of it, and I think the customer side well. But that's a small slice to being a CEO and a co-founder of a company. Um, so as you entered like the worlds of um, CEO and having to raise money and hiring and building a company, what was that like? Um, how did you acquire the expertise and the insights uh, to deal with more of the EQ and the fundraising and the stuff outside the science and the product and the market? Sure. Yeah. I mean, fundraising is weird, right? Like there's no, I would say, very good book on, you know, how to go out and raise a venture round. And honestly, it like changes year to year as a function of the market and as a function of what's, you know, what's what's interesting, right? So so you, you really do have to so for me, I guess, as a postdoc with my first sort of seed pitch deck, um, I initially bounced it off friends. I initially bounced it off um, angel investors that those friends connected me to who were not in my area at all. <laughs> so I could get some like very, <laughs> very like clear feedback without having any sort of risk, right? Um, and then, uh, and, and so I started off with, with basically zero network, right? In terms of actual investors, but um but once you start to meet a few, that, that sort of community is very well connected. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then how about on the hiring side? That's you know also something incredibly important and falls outside of sort of the, the science view of things. And how did you know um, and learn and put a management team together and a staff and a team and recruit and retain really great talent? How did, how did that occur for you? Yeah, hiring is incredibly important. It's so important. And there's a whole bunch of things I know today that I didn't know when I got started. And, and one of those is honestly just how many people will be sort of interested in what you are building, right? Like, I think there are a lot of very smart, accomplished people out there um, who are excited by, by new things and who are willing to help. So I've become a much bigger fan, like I'm a huge fan of the cold email, just sort of reaching out, just and whoever you think is interesting, you'll get a fairly high return rate on that. <laughs> I'm just being very sort of ambitious with your hiring plans. So there's 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 network, but but don't you know limit yourself to that at all, right? Um, try to figure out who you think is the best at X and, and reach out directly to them and to their network. Um, that's I think paid off for us uh, many times. Like I, I don't know anything about clinical development, right, or, or drug discovery. Right. So, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you utilize mentors as well through this process? Obviously, you had a board and investors, but. Um, what kind of role did mentors play um, in helping you figure all this out? Yeah, definitely. I mean, like there's mentors who have gone, like there's, there's sort of, there's mentors who's like sort of seen it all, but that's wonderful. And there might be angel investors who've been involved with, you know, hundreds of companies in some cases, right? And there's also mentors who are like one or two years ahead of you. And, and those are both, I would say, incredibly useful in different ways because having had your sort of direct experience that like, you know, <laughs> just just you know, a little bit in the future, being able to peer into the future one year is incredibly valuable. Um, so I think that um, both types are, are really important to get on your side, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it sounds like you've utilized them very well. All right, let's dig in a little bit more here. Um, so first, how did you decide which potential therapies and interventions to work on? Given probably an unlimited um, array of options, how did how did how did you boil that down to this single focus? Yeah, this is this is uh, sort of connected to what I mentioned earlier, right? So we really want to reduce risk at every step. So there's no magic bullet for aging. We know that from all the animal work that we've done, you know, that 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 the field has done over the past few decades. But there are probably several different, several dozen different pathways that are important that can work. And the way that we've approached this at BioAge is that, so again, you see a whole bunch of different signals emerging from our human data. And how do which targets we prosecute on first? And we're really doing it in order of like the most de-risk to the most novel. Um, so we specifically chose to start with those targets that had existing chemical matter. So we wouldn't have to build a drug from scratch. Uh, and that let us get really a rapid start on advancing our first therapies into the clinic, as well as just the preclinical testing, right? You need to have a sort of tool to move forward. We didn't want to build everything ourselves from scratch. So it's really sort of assessing um, the ones that have the most knowledge around them already. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that really intrigued me was the your comment about going back 50 years of time and getting those, um, those data sets and, and blood samples. But my guess, however, is that um, that in and of itself is like boiling the ocean. So there's a lot of noise. And how are you able to sort of extract the signal through the noise? And how does that magic work? 
Yeah, sure. So there's a lot of, you know, you can make a big list of things that predict that that are, you know, correlated, right, with longevity, correlated with health span. And then the question is, what are the actual big levers? What are the causal things, right? And so there's a number of different techniques you can do, like in silico on your computer, things like Mendelian randomization, which asks the question, like if there's a genetic variation, then does that actually cause a difference in the trait, um, which works sometimes, but not always. And honestly, whenever you're doing the computational analysis, I think of that as just giving you like kind of a prioritized list, right? And then you really need to do the in vivo experiment. You really need to actually modulate the target in a living animal to make sure that one, it's important for aging and two, because again, remember for each of these drugs, we're going first to an acute disease. And it's really important that the drug not, not only be relevant for aging, but also have a big enough effect in an acute disease model to justify clinical development, right? Um, so, so we've also invested a lot on that side and we have our own, you know, um, aging mouse colony of about 5,000 animals, it's sort of a really extensive battery of tests. Um, so it's really important, I think, to have those two components together. Yeah, yeah that's fascinating. Okay, so um, biotech's one of those fields where you spend a lot of time and money working on something um, before anything obviously can be tested for real people. So I'm curious, you know, half of my career was in uh, software development, and that's pretty standard. You work on these sprints. They're usually two weeks in length. They do a build. You test it. And you can see the progress. You've added new features. You've fixed some bugs or what have you. Any of their other businesses have fairly larger cycles. But I'm just wondering, obviously, like, how do you deal with such a long development timeline, both in terms of, like, patience um, and resiliency? And then how do you sort of measure that progress without you know, kind of clear um, kind of builds in software or in renewable energy, you see the number of systems that you're building and and how do you manage all of that? It's funny you mentioned patients because I think of myself as a very impatient person <laughs> and it's true. No, it would be lovely, right? If Firestack had iteration cycles like software, but all these things take a lot of time. Um, so while, while it takes a long time to get to revenue, right? But which is sort of, I guess, you're right, if you're a startup, that, that really matters, your time to revenue, to actually be able to sell the drug for humans. There are like really, really big de-risking milestones along the way, right? Like, you know, is there a target? Is there a drug that hits the target that has all the right characteristics to be advanced? Does it actually work in the animal model? Um, you know, can't, like there's, so there's every year, there's like a lot of like, I would say really important de-risking um, information that you learn. And then, and then the big one, of course, is your first few clinical trials. And we just put, you know, last year was the first year that we put um, one of our drugs into a human, right? And uh, it's amazing, like really exciting milestone for us. And uh, and this year we have these two data readouts, right? So it's the first time, that's kind of the ultimate test. And the scary thing too in biotech, right? Is that you can do sort of, unlike in software, <laughs> you can do everything right and you can still be surprised in the clinic because humans are very, different from mice, right? So you can sort of de-risk as much as you like. But the, the upside, of course, is that um, the, the rewards are tremendous, right? So, so biotech is very, I would say, high risk, high reward, like immensely, you know, high reward uh, if a therapy can actually improve a patient's lives. Yeah. Yeah. So looking at your entrepreneurial journey, what would you say would be um, the biggest surprise in a positive way? And also the exact opposite of that, the biggest surprise in a negative way from starting to where you are today. Sure. Um, the biggest surprise in a positive way, I guess, you know, coming into um, the entrepreneurial world, the biotech world as an academic, I think I had everything backwards in a way. <laughs> I thought that like what the scientists did, which was like finding the target to work on, that was like the hard part, you know? <laughs> and then you just, you know, pharma and clinical development were just these sort of machines, these like cranks that you turn to build a drug, to run a trial. And um, I guess I have the very opposite view today. <laughs> <where laughs> probably corrected too much in the other direction where it's like, oh, targets, those are, you know, those are easy. <laughs> yeah. Like, this sort of... <laughs> So that's that's one example where I was sort of, um, I guess, you could call that surprise in a negative way, where I just had like, really the wrong idea. Um, it related to that too, I guess. I thought that um, the best science brands were in academia, you know, and that like people who went into you know pharma, those are different species, <laughs> and that's really not true. Like there's there's this amazingly brilliant people um, 
in pharma, in, in drug discovery, in, in clinical development, um, like really creative, really amazing people. And being able to work with them, I think, has been really exciting. Yeah. 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 I'm also curious, too, um, within your industry, um, you know, what is your corporate culture and values look like and, and how do you manage that? Corporate culture and values. So, I mean, we are very science centered, um, right? Discovery oriented, right? So, so I think that's an important part of our culture is, is really just creativity, um, giving everybody room to grow. Because um, again, like I started as a postdoc, my co-founder also started as an academic and we really want everybody to be able to, you know, no matter where they're coming from, um, be able to sort of grow into their roles at BioAge. And like, honestly, especially in an early stage startup, like there is no one more valuable <laughs> than the really sort of brilliant generalist who sort of wants to throw themselves into whatever's needed because there's always going to be something different, you know, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis. We're at 60 people today and that's like still true to a large extent, really, right? <laughs> there's just so many different things going on. Um, of course, you need decision-making structures too. Those are, those are really important. Um, I'm a big fan of, I think it's called like the, the disagree and commit, right? So I, I like a culture where um, you have a meeting and everyone gets to put in input because everyone has really good ideas and you want people to feel comfortable to sort of disagree and to sort of say, I think that's a terrible idea, <laughs> but then, then you make a decision and after that, everyone needs to align around it, right? That's the most efficient way to move forward, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I want to remind the students, don't forget, post in the QA. I see some popping in here so they can get upvoted. I'm sure either you are interested in bioaging or your aunts or uncles or parents or grandparents. So keep those questions coming. All right. Uh, a little bit more tactical. How much do you uh, do you need to be already thinking about how your interventions will fit into the broader healthcare system, specifically like insurance and hospitals and all the other downstream infrastructure? Definitely. Yeah. So, so again, you know, we try to make that easier by going first after diseases where that's already been mapped out. So we don't, we're not inventing the disease, you know, it's not a, a, a new one. Right. So we know there's like a clear payer strategy. We like, this is really important from a, a regulatory risk. Like will the FDA even accept these clinical trial endpoints? Are they meaningful? And will the payers pay for it at the end of the day? So these are really critically important. Like that's an important part of de-risking your program. I will say though, but right. Like, we do have this longer term vision that these therapies are not just gonna treat an acute disease, but they might be you know, a drug for frailty or a drug for immune dysfunction, maybe used prophylactically. Like a, a great example today is something like a statin. It's prescribed as though it were an aging drug, right? Like if you're over 40, you have a couple of risk biomarkers, your doctor will prescribe a statin. And they weren't first approved that way. They were first approved for um, familial hypercholesterolemia, like a narrow orphan disease. And the label was widened over time. So this is a path that's been trodden before, you know, in terms of start with a very narrow indication, broaden over time to a big one. And the question for us looking to the future is like, can we accelerate that, right? Like what is, like, we believe there are, you know, gonna be these therapies that fundamentally move the needle on aging. And how do we actually get them to the largest population that could benefit as rapidly as possible? So that that's more, I would say, you know, that's a harder question, right? But we are doing some work on that now to really realize the, the full value of these therapies and help the most patients. Yeah, and I think too, for the non-science, non-bio folks out there, just as consumers, we look at that and go, I mean, I, just a regulatory massive black hole. No one understands it, but you know, how, how do you navigate through all those regulatory issues involved in doing something like so incredibly, incredibly radical? Sure. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're still figuring it out, right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, it's, it's pretty complex too, even for like a standard disease. You have to have a lot of interactions to get your therapy approved, to get your endpoints acknowledged. Um, and then beyond that, like, so there are, I mean, there is precedent, right? Like there are new indications like all the time. Um, and the FDA can be very open-minded about those, but you have to sort of initiate discussions now and start working groups and start convening, you know, groups of experts who, like, for example, frailty, right? Like, that's not a clinical indication today, but I would love it if, you know, you could have a clinical trial where you have a, a bunch of, you know, older people with impaired muscle function, maybe they don't walk so well, right? And we could get FDA to agree that, you know, if, if they walk better or some other functional measures improve, then we'll approve this therapy for this indication. And so there is a path forward there, but it's, it's, it's a longer one, yeah. Yeah, I think too, I know going back through my entrepreneurial journey, and I know 
for me, really focusing on first principles and developing frameworks really helped me um, make really good decisions outside of, you know, whether I was a software engineer or kind of product manager. But as a CEO and co-founder, my guess is that you're dealing with lots of sorts of decisions you have to make in building a company um, from very different decisions um, and that don't have to do with doing research. So did you have to develop new principles or frameworks and how do you make decisions and the stuff that kind of fell outside of the um, out of out of the science category? Sure. I mean, I don't think we're necessarily building new frameworks, but we are sewing together ones from a lot of different disciplines, right? Whether it's like doing good data science uh, and then doing good, you know, experimental biology and, and target nomination uh, to doing a good clinical trial design. The one, like I would say, hardest piece that we have to do, which maybe, you know, I, I think it's both a challenge and an opportunity, right? Because often in biotech, you're like, we are a company that works on disease X, maybe it's Alzheimer's, maybe it's some cancers. And so you know what your drug is being developed for. And for us, we find a target, we know it's important for aging, and that means it's important for actually a number of different diseases, right? So it's actually, this is an area where we have to actually pick the first disease that has the highest chance of success, um, you know, in the shortest amount of time, the least amount of money. So it's like a fun, constrained problem to solve. So that's one of the, the more unique challenges we solve, but the rest are really, I would say, common to a lot of biotech, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think looking at the, the great trajectory of BioAge, and I think I noticed on your last press release, bringing on board a chief medical officer, you obviously have had great success in hiring and retaining really great people. Um, what's been your secret? And what other advice could you give the students on, on how to master that challenge? Um, I think everybody is really excited. I mean, I, I think it's really important that everybody you hire be really excited about the mission. Um, and, you know, we have an ambitious mission, so that that helps. <laughs> I think that we're able to attract a lot of a talent of a lot of really great talent because they're excited about what we're doing. Uh, they're excited about the um, autonomy they have to sort of help execute on that mission. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a big job and a lot of weight on your shoulders. This is such a big vision and a long-term vision with you know potentially incredibly profound impacts on health, bioaging, and society. But I'm wondering, what do you do to compress when you got to take your work hat off? Um, uh, how do you unwind and, and how do you find time to recharge your batteries? Um, so I probably recharge in a few different ways. Uh, like everybody, I still read a lot of science fiction. That's how I fall asleep at night. <laughs> the most effective way to decompress is that I, I have um, two little kids, actually. I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old. And when you are playing with a two-year-old and a five-year-old, you can't think of anything else. It's not even an option. So I <laughs> <laughs> recommend spending some time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's fantastic. They won't let you, you know. <laughs> right, right. Do you have any other hobbies or um, do you work in some travel um, or is it just walk or meditation or yoga or any of those, those types of activities? <laughs> Probably tough as, as a young mom. <laughs> Um, I, I jog. Travel is usually really around sort of work-related events, but that's okay. Like you can always tack on a day or two to be a tourist, right? So that's fun. Yeah. 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 That's great. So here's sort of a horizon trajectory question for all those aspiring entrepreneurs out there who may want to innovate in uh, the highly technical biotech space. What are the areas you think that are ripe for exploration um, in this field? Well, I'm biased, but I actually think there should be more aging companies. <laughs> you might have guessed my answer there. Um, I, you know, like I, today there are so many different oncology companies, right? Like there's just, it's such a crowded space. And um, aging is a new science. There are going to be a lot of different mechanisms that work. And honestly, we need more companies in this space. Like I, I know basically everybody else in the space because that's how small the field is. It's brand new, right? It basically didn't exist a few years ago. There was nothing clinical stage a few years ago. And even today, all the companies that I know, like we're not competitive because there's so many targets, all this opportunity. So I'm a really big believer in that. Um, there's also, of course, all these different um, really exciting modalities, right? So I think there's new ways to build drugs that are really exciting. I personally am biased towards sort of platform approaches. Like if you're in the clinic, we discussed this earlier with a drug, like that's that's really risky. And it's just like a binary risk, right? It either works in a person or it doesn't. And the company sort of lives or dies by that. And if you're a platform company, then you can have a portfolio of bets. And, um, and our approach at BioAge is to have a computational platform to yield multiple targets, to advance multiple therapies that way. 
but there's also like different types of platform, like ones that are using like, like maybe it's a way of making drugs, right? Like it's a way of using ML to build drugs de novo, or it's a way to use, you know, CRISPR or antibodies, right? But um, but I, I'm really excited by this sort of newer generation of um, platform approaches to, to therapeutics. Yeah, well, I think, uh, I'm not sure, I'm gonna give her credit anyways, Tina Selig, because um, I heard her say it, um, maybe she stole it from somebody else, but um, kind of our favorite question here at ETL, which is if you could go back uh, to your 20 year old self, that's not that far for you, but if you go back to your 20 year old self and tell yourself one thing, what would that, what would you tell yourself? Uh, oh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, just to start everything earlier, right? Like, I don't think I, you know, I think you can be really successful as uh, an entrepreneur. I think there's like brilliant people um, that are starting things that, and you don't really need a postdoc. You don't really need a PhD. The world, like if you, again, if you cold email someone who's written an awesome paper that you'd like to work with them on, people are remarkably responsive to that. So just that it's, there's sort of like a bigger world, I guess, that I was aware of at that, at that age in a more accessible world. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. One question I'm curious about is I know in other industries, um, one of the challenges with hiring really talented people is they're also incredibly creative and uh, have lots of ideas. And sometimes focus becomes a problem for large companies. And in my experience, both looking at Tesla and other companies, usually the problem's not um, the quantity or even quality of ideas. It's really knowing what not to say no to and that kind of discipline where a lot of CEOs just do, don't have that natural talent or ability. But I'm wondering, is that a factor in your business or is it just like, hey, we got a, a clinical trial. It's pretty, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's sort of standard or are there differing points of view, other ideas that come in and, and it potentially present some challenges around how to keep things focused and you know, really focus on the things that really move the needle. And how do you evaluate that? And yeah, no, that's a really great question. And certainly there are a lot of, you know, you do need to brainstorm and there are a lot of different directions that things can go in. And, and personally, and I also agree with you that there are some people who are brilliant at brainstorming and having like wonderful ideas, but not at, like picking and focusing, right? So yeah. I actually like to have those skills in different people. <laughs> you know, you've got yeah. your brainstormer and that's sort of where the idea generation comes. And then you you bring in your sort of crew of cutters, <laughs> sort of like <laughs> focus in <laughs> on the most practical one. And, and that sort of, you know, you can have, I think a team that is very complimentary that way and you need really both sides of that. Yeah, fantastic. All right, we got a whole bunch of really cool questions. So we're gonna, I'm gonna open up the Q and A box here. This first one, um, I'm actually, is very philosophical for you. Um, and I'm really curious to know as well. It comes under the alias of Twilight Thoughts question mark. So here's the question. When you can live forever, what do you live for? <laughs> <laughs> is it really any different? You know, I mean, like the thought experiment, I guess, is like, what if, you know, you could take a pill every day that would make you super healthy and, you know, everything works and, you know, like super fun. You're a 20, perfectly functioning 20 year old for that day. Right. And the question is, when, when do you stop taking that pill? <laughs> and why? Right. Yeah. I think, you know, in the United States, right, I think the average age, the average life expectancy is close to double, you know, in the last century um, with all the sort of changes that were made. And I, you know, and now it feels natural, you know, to live, yeah. but it, it used to be like actually a lot shorter than that, right? So I don't know. Personally, I think there's, there's lots that I would do. <laughs> Go back and do yeah. some physics. But, you know, there's, there's so many things, right? So, yeah. 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 I, I think you're right. And I think too, it boils down to kind of a mindset question in that, you know, our, our neuroplasticity, our brain stops growing at about 16 years old and neuroplasticity usually starts to hit a peak at about 25, but we're all born with this natural innate ability to create. Um, and it's extraordinary. And over time, as you can conform to society, that neuroplasticity erodes and you get into these just habits. And I think then the quality of life just begins to erode. For those that are young at heart, and I think are always pushing the boundary, have a growth mindset, there's unlimited horizons to tackle um, and opportunities to explore and new talents and skills to develop. And if that's your mindset, then I think that there's a lot to live for. And if you're going through the drudgery of life and, you know, the same sort of cycle, then you're probably going to get a different answer. So that, that's a really cool question. All right. Something a little bit more tactical. Um, when you pitch to investors, what are some of the most powerful data points or stories slash frameworks that seem to really convince investors? Because they're obviously betting on the future. 
I'm not sure, you know, lots of investors, especially as you get out of a seed round, there's some metrics like, hey, they're looking at product market fit. Uh, they can touch and feel your product. They look at how many customers are in your beta and maybe there's some revenue in there, but this is a really different story. So yeah, my guess is you probably had some no's. Uh, raising money is a really humbling experience. I have had way more no's than yeses in my career. Um, but what's that like from a pitching and a storytelling standpoint of how to get that investor to see your vision and understand this opportunity? Yeah, for sure. So it's a combination of a few things. And like you said, like one of them is sort of what is the, what, what what's the vision if everything works, right? And there you can point at, you know, point pointed statistics of, you know, all these things that work in, in animal models, for example, and what that would mean for a human. And, and then there's, there's sort of like the, the actual sort of practicality, you know, component, right? Where um, you have a therapy and you have, you know, at least this first indication where also it's going to work <laughs> and that in itself yeah. is a valuable market and that in itself has this like wonderful animal data and this great drug and a clear plan to move forward right so so it's like these are you know therapeutics for acute diseases with high unmet need and and everything else in a way is all upside right so so i i think it's really important to work with investors who have your, your broader vision right because like because we, we could be a company really just working on these first diseases but we want to do a whole lot more than that um, but that's an important component, right? Because you have to sort of show what the sort of how you're reducing risk at every point, yeah. As yeah. well as the long, you know, the overall potential, yeah. Yeah. And where do you think um, we talked about kind of what the overall industry trends might be? But where do you specifically see BioAge in, in ten years? What does that What does that look like? Um, I'd, I'd like us to have a couple approved therapies, right? And ideally, they're approved for a specific disease. And at the same time, um, we have some information on whether they're really going to impact aging. And we're trying to start get a head start on this in our clinical trials in the sense that even though our trials are for an acute disease, we are measuring, you know, biomarkers of aging. Like these are all, you know, diseases in older patients. Um, we're doing like full proteomics at the beginning and the end, just to integrate it back with our cohort data and ask, are we changing biomarkers of aging to sort of start to learn if they have this broader potential. So in 10 years, I'd like us to have a couple of therapies that have, you know, passed the finish line for that first indication and where we also have conviction that they have potential beyond that from human data in our trials. Yeah, great job. Um, this goes back to one of the first comments that you made in uh, your love of, of science fiction. Um, so students asking, what are your top three recommendations for sci-fi books to read? <laughs> That's hmm. a great question. <laughs> um, Greg Egan is probably one of my favorites. So uh, Diaspora is a really good book. Um, so is Axiomatic for that matter. That's two Greg Egan's. <laughs> I'm currently reading Brian Stableford, um, who I also recommend, more of an oddball. But um, there's a, yeah, some very, very good science fiction novels there. I actually can't remember the title of the one I'm reading right now. Um, David Zindel, I like that that's three <laughs> good authors, at least. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. And then what made you decide to come to Stanford for your postdoc? And how much of that decision do you think played into you taking the an entrepreneurial path? Yeah, I know that's a really good question. So the why, so so aging is a, a really small, weird field, even today, right? So, so just to give you an example, um, I did my PhD at the University of Toronto. I graduated in 2012, and that's Canada's largest research university, but it actually had zero labs focused on aging. So I was doing aging projects, but in a cancer informatics lab. And there's really only a few labs at, at you know, not even at every university that work on aging. Um, and Stanford is one of them. Um, so I worked with, with, with Stuart Kim uh, at Stanford, who had done some really great sort of computational papers. And specifically, he had um, these uh, DNA from these humans who lived to be older than 110. And uh, I wanted to crack at that data. I've always believed that, you know, some of the low hanging fruit really is to, to learn from the humans who are already aging well, right? Like these are living examples that we can do it safely. <laughs> we can do it while preserving function. Uh, so if we can learn what's different about those people, then we can target that. And that's like, you know, that theme has continued to BioAge. And, and that's a great question. Like, I, I don't know that I would have thought to start BioAge if I hadn't been in the Bay Area. Um, you know, there's a good chance I wouldn't have. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a, a very fr fruitful environment for entrepreneurship where you've got all the pieces there and, you know, it takes well, yeah, um, that, like that mindset. You start pieces. to move in that mindset, right? 
Yeah, like there's a piece of sort of like making it on your mouth of sort of like reasonable career moves, like that's one piece. But the second is also just, I would say, you know, um, investors willing to be, you know, to, to bet on these kinds of ideas too, right? Like like the kinds of investors that you have in, you know, Europe or somewhere like Toronto versus, um, or even other parts of the United States are, are very different, yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, next question. How much drug modeling do you simulate using software? And at what stage of the process um, are you doing the simulation? The second part of the question is, do you close the feedback loop by using the FDA trial data results or something else? Oh, so we're not doing drug simulation in our data sets. Our data is all about finding targets, biological targets. And then we're using drugs that are, you know, that are designed specifically to hit those targets. So that's not sort of um, computational. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this is a great one too, which pertains to funding. Uh, given that biotech seems, I shouldn't say seems, is very complex. Were you able to test your assumptions about your product in any way before you got funding? Um, test it well only in in animal models, right? Like okay. certainly not in humans. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. basically, it was just the animal models that that either it was pretty binary. The investors could understand that, felt that felt there was um, that that data was was good enough to make the investment on. Well, yeah. I mean, the way that we look at it is that we're doing our target discovery in human populations, and that should be de-risking, right? Because we want to ultimately take these to humans. Like, there's a lot of other companies, even focused on particular therapeutic areas, where it's all in animals, right? And it's sort of like it's the target first discovered in animals, works great in mice, and like fingers crossed in humans. And we know that it's that these are targets relevant for aging from our human data sets, and then we have, you know, also that it works in the animals, right? And it's sort of those two things together um, that, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, you know, congratulations on the last big round you raised. Um, where do you see those investments being made to get you to what stage of the company? Sure. So those are, you know, the bulk of that is going to be spent, you know, if you were a tech company, that would be spent on headcount, right? But, that, yep. but, you know, as a biotech company, that's almost all going to clinical trials. Clinical trials are very expensive. So it's really to give sort of like, you know, three different, like, well-powered clinical shots, um, you know, while, while, while keeping the discovery engine running, you know, but that's honestly much more capital efficient than having to run a clinical trial. So it's really going to get us to, you know, proof points for three programs. Yep. Three, three, three and a half programs. Yeah. Got it. And then uh, how much might you own therapies, um, uh, therapies that relate to end of life or palliative care? That's the first part of the question. And then, um, Basically, like how much do you need to think about the ethics around when to continue and when to stop an aging related therapy? Or is it that a line of thinking better left to a doctor healthcare system? Um, I'm not sure I understood the first part of the question. What was that? Yeah, so I think it was basically like how much might you own therapies that relate to end of life or palliative care? Uh, so do you see that vectoring in or is it you know more on the front the front side of that? Yeah, sure, sure. No, that makes sense. I mean, it's actually a lot harder to go in and make a significant difference when someone is very, very ill. So in, in most cases, we're, we're going earlier than that. Um, so, so for example, you know, the two first indications for our immune aging drug, um, we actually are going after patients with hospitalized with COVID, older patients hospitalized with COVID, you know, so that's, they're, they're sick, but they still can make a full recovery. Um, and for our muscle aging drug, we're looking at patients who are uh, suffering acute muscle atrophy in hospitals. So again, sort of transfers for full recovery. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, I'm curious to know, are there, what type, what is the, what are the operational KPIs look like? Do you use OKRs or what are the, you know, what does your dashboard look like? And you manage it weekly or biweekly or monthly or quarterly? What do the operational metrics look like? Yeah, that differs a lot by team for us. So I would say the clinical team is very, very heavily operational because that's really like you have this really complicated plan to execute, right? <laughs> so that's 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 sort of very KPI driven. Research is, is less so. Um, it, it is more around sort of a certain number of targets assessed, you know, diligence really, right? You know, internally with internal resource in vitro and vivo um, by quarter. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you... Um go early on with bringing an in-house patent uh, group or do you still utilize an outside patent group? I we still utilize that's an critical... outside group. Yeah. 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 Fantastic. Okay. Another question here. To what end are you motivated by effective altruism? 
Um, that's an interesting question. Um, I don't, you know, formally identify as that, even though I guess I am very aligned. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I yeah. I, I tend to not eat meat for the same reason, but this is all really giving like more healthy years to people, right? Like that's, I think the real promise of aging science, like people have estimated that if you could cure all cancer so that cancer didn't exist anymore, that would extend average lifespan by four years only, you know, which is a number that amazes people, right? And it's because if you're at the age at which you get cancer, you're also very highly likely to get, you know, heart disease or, or Alzheimer's, et cetera. And, um, and those are, so, so it's four years and it's not four healthy years, right? Because you're old and you have all these other comorbidities piling on top of you. Um, and in contrast, if we could extend, you know, so like these therapies, again, the first can be used to treat acute disease, but eventually I'd like them to be used preventatively <laughs> to sort of delay the onset of disease the same way that we see in these long-lived human populations. And if, you know, what we've done in mice over and over again, is extended that period of healthy life um, by close to two decades, you know, in human equivalent years. And that would be tremendous, you know, um, from that perspective, yeah. Yeah, that's great. And the second part of that question is, and have you read The Fable of the Dragon Tyrant by Nick Bostrom? Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> great that's story. great. Yeah. Um, are there any other books that you'd recommend, just general topic stuff that you think helped you with, understanding uh, entrepreneurship and what that journey would look like or business um, books or. Yeah, sure. I mean, not, I, I like, I guess I like the biotech specific books. So there's this billion dollar molecules. There's a, there's a story about the origin of Amgen. There's a story about the origin of Genentech and they're, they're really great. Like it's, you know, sort of in the trenches. So there's, there's really always good times and hard times and <laughs> lots of decisions. There's also the founder of Avalum, John Raganor had a, a really great piece about his company in either Nature or Nature Biotech that just came out a few days ago that I would highly recommend. Just it's, it's you know, a very novel modality and investors love them. Sometimes they were like the hottest thing ever. Then they completely abandoned them other years. <laughs> and it's, it's just it's just a really um, inspiring story. And, it, you know, it went on to become a really um, groundbreaking company. Um, so that's, you know, I would recommend that there, there's, I wish there were more of those really, frankly, you know, there aren't that many biotech ones, but the, the, the ones that are out there are, there are actually very good. Yeah. The Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series is a Stanford eCorner original production. The stories and lessons on Stanford eCorner are designed to help you find the courage and clarity to see and seize opportunities. Stanford eCorner is led by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and Stanford's Department of Management Science and Engineering. To learn more, please visit us at eCorner.stanford.edu.